Danse, greetings. Welcome to Indigenous Insights, an evaluation podcast. I am so grateful you're here. I'm Gladys Rowe, your host. What is Indigenous evaluation? Who is doing this work? How are we doing this work? And what have we learned so far? Each episode, I will sit in conversation with Indigenous evaluation practitioners, leaders, researchers, and scholars who are working in, thinking about, and supporting Indigenous evaluation to share how they're doing their work and the challenges and insights they've experienced along the way. It is my hope that this podcast will feel like a deep breath, will feel like a space that you can come and you can listen and learn, where I invite you to grab a cozy beverage and to settle in. Join me and my guests as we open up our evaluation bundles to share the gifts, knowledges, and hopes that we've gathered in our journeys and bring them together in this space. I hope in these stories you will find resonance in the critical contributions that Indigenous evaluation can make as we work towards decolonial futures and strengthening Indigenous resurgence. There we go. Okay, so today I'm here with two amazing scholars and human beings, Dr. Paula Morelli and Dr. Peter Matera. I've known you both for many years now through the International Indigenous Voices and Social Work Conference and in my time supporting the Journal of Indigenous Social Development, which were both really amazing experiences. And I know as a graduate student, you were also so supportive with your insights and encouragement. So I was really grateful when you accepted the invitation to come and sit in conversation with me today. You know, your contributions to the field of Indigenous research and evaluation really has grown my own understanding of how to do this work. And so, yeah, super grateful to have you both with me on the podcast today. Welcome. Uh, Aloha. Kia ora. My name is Peter Mataira. I just introduced myself briefly in my language, which is standard for us to, I guess, the idea of positionality is really important. So I just gave you the name of my mountain, my river, and my tribe. I am Maori from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and here in Hawaii for about 20 years. I currently teach social work at Hawaii Pacific University. And I've worked with my good colleague, Dr. Morelli, for, gosh, 20-plus years. So it's an honor to be here. And thank you again, Gladys, for the opportunity to share our thoughts about Indigenous evaluation. So, kia ora. Aloha. I'm Paula Toki Tanemura Araulio Morelli. And I say that all because it's part of my genealogy. I'm a third-generation descendant of Filipino-Japanese uh, immigrant settlers here in Hawaii. And, you know, both of my second generation parents were raised here, but they didn't really meet until they were forcibly removed from the West Coast and held in American concentration camps. And I think most people know that there were over 120,000 Japanese Americans that were put into 10 camps across the United States until the war ended. So I was born in Chicago and raised in Molokai and Oahu. I live currently on the island of Oahu in the Moku of Kona on the east side of Oahu. And Peter and I, as he said, met about 23 years ago. Peter, I I looked it up, April 1999. And then 
he came to Hawaii and contacted me. We had lunch. And then I said, hey, do you want to be on the University of Hawaii Mm -hmm. School of Social Work faculty? And I think it took a year and a half or something. And he was here. So we've had many adventures and experiences together in uh, research and working in Indigenous communities. Thank you so much for sharing your introductions and sharing a little bit about how you came to work together. And and in my time knowing you both, I think I just see you as this powerhouse team working with communities and in Indigenous evaluation. So I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you started to work together with the focus of Indigenous evaluation. What did that look like at the beginning? You know, working at the university, we had our usual load of teaching classes and doing research. And I think like Peter, I know Peter was in the same vein that we wanted to work and be relevant in communities. We kind of didn't see ourselves really going after giant grants, although that would have been, you know, helpful to the university itself who want their scholars to bring in big money. We were more interested in working in communities. So we started off looking at what's out there and actually were invited to work within a community in the North Shore area. I mean, Punalu'u, where Nakamalei, indigenous, culturally based early education program is. So that's one of the projects that we got involved in. And we didn't do many at one time because our commitment was long term. We still know these people, even after 18 years, we would like for them to call on us if there's anything that they need. So that's one of the ways we operate is if you're going in to make a long term commitment. And I'll stop there. And if I sort of go back, so I arrived here in Hawaii about 20 years ago, yeah. 2002, I arrived here and I kind of came from a very grounded experience working in my community. I'm from the east coast of the North Island of Aotearoa. And a lot of the work that we typically do, I was a social worker, you know, it's always about evaluating. It's always about assessing. You just do it. And I was fortunate to work on a number of projects while I was at my university. And there's a lot of things that were just given protocol about engaging and working within communities. So you know, I'd been doing that for a few years. And so coming to Hawaii, it was almost like a very sort of like an expectation for me to at least honor the protocols of entering communities. So Paula and I uh, started working here on the North Shore where I currently live. And we ended up working with um, some local people that I've known for a number of years when I arrived here. And, you know, they say go in with an open mind, but you also have to go in with an open heart, you know, open ears, you know, and humility. That's how we began our process of working in in communities and honoring what we, you know, one of our good colleagues uh, who wrote an article uh, almost 20 years ago, he called Guesthood. So he wrote that article, Guesthood, and sent it to me, the draft, and I read it, and I was just absolutely just impacted hugely by that article because he wrote it about, he's English, and he wrote it about coming into my community back in Aotearoa as a researcher. But the subheading of that paper was what captured me. He basically said, as a British middle-aged man coming into a strong Māori community, he honoured his own guesthood. And again, his subtitle was something to the effect of 
an ethical consideration for decolonizing research. And I've always been fascinated by that idea that we always enter a community as a guest. So, and Paula and I have been doing that for the last 18 years. So, yeah, I think one of the things we learn is that you go into communities and they have something they want to tell us. So we need to listen first. So continuing on from what Paula was saying, the idea that we listen, you know, we did a uh, very short documentary on our engagement with communities. And we say quite clearly that the key to being a good Indigenous, or in fact, a good evaluator is, you know, the ability to listen and listen with, you know, not just reflective listening or active listening. This phrase was, you have to listen with your eyes. And that's really important in Indigenous communities because you can deduce from what people's expressions are whether they feel comfortable or uncomfortable or they're not quite sure what you mean. And, you know, we learn to listen with our eyes as as much as our ears. Yeah. And I think we also learned a lot about is the notion that you're going to do something that they might not like, and you have to take what we call your lickens and be able to stay the course with them. It's an important part that even in, you know, some of our Nakamale, for example, we were scolded and we stayed and we fell on our sword and said, yeah, we're wrong and proceeded. And I think that's critical to the strong relationship that we developed with them over time. Yeah, just to add to that, I agree, you know, that Mm -hmm. I recall we had a conversation, Paula, when I, I kind of mentioned sort of leant over and said I think they're upset with us and I think this was when we were up Kalihi Valley which was one of the projects we worked on and then we talked about it after and I think that's a good thing because you know for them to be able to sort of push back at you kind of is an honoring um, in a way of of us that they felt comfortable to do that and uh, in our presence Uh, you know in, in our work as Paula said to take our lickings or to get pushback or be criticized was really quite honoring. It's like the community had a trust in you that they could say what they needed to say and not feel like, you know, they have to be apologetic about it. You know, that's the sort of things I learned back in Aotearoa in New Zealand because we always push back at strangers or people we don't know coming into our communities, especially researchers, right? And, you know, we have a way of doing it through our protocol. You know, Paula and I understand that protocol is of welcome is so important. Thank you for sharing those stories and those experiences. I always learn so much just sitting and listening to both of you. I really appreciate the lessons that you shared there around protocol and around the idea of guesthood, because one of the things that I think about is that even though I'm a Cree scholar, an Indigenous researcher and evaluator, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm granted free access to any community that I walk into, but it's about taking the lessons that I've learned from my ways of knowing, being, and doing, and then entering into a a relationship, following protocol, and in a good way, and knowing that sometimes I'm going to mess up, and that's really nerve-wracking to think about, But then how do you be in that relationship when you mess up, right? When you are given that lick in, when you need to um, sit with the idea of humility and listen even more than you share. I'm wondering if 
there's some other examples or some other things that you've taken away that you'd like to share about how you enter into a community to do that work grounded in the principles of Indigenous evaluation? Well, I think that both of us know each and all of us, each community is very different. In Hawaii, for example, you know, we have the neighbor islands and we can never assume that an Indigenous Native Hawaiian community is the same anywhere. One of our experiences is going into Molokai. And while I grew up on Molokai, which is an island that has about 7,500 people in total, it is very resistant to outsiders. And even though I grew up there, I'm still a guest. I go there and I've got to pay attention to everything that they're saying, what the context is currently, and not only know the history you know, of the place, I think if you can learn before you go more about where you're going, that's going to be helpful, but not assume that everything is the same. That's one of the ways in which I enter anything. I, I've got to know what the context is, at least to some extent. Yeah. And that, that's really important. You know, any of you listening to this podcast have visited my home country of Aotearoa, of New Zealand, and have engaged with the Māori community and have been welcomed into our sacred places, our marae. You encounter what we call a pōwhiri, which is a formal welcome. And it's a very clear process as to who has control, which is the local people. So any visitor, guest coming into our community, whether as a researcher or it could be a visiting school or a sports team, you engage in forfeiting. It is an engagement where you come in as a guest and you state your reason for coming. And it's all done in a very formalized way. And that welcome protocol. It's a cultural protective fact is that we don't know who you are. We don't know what your intentions are. You coming in as a, uh, you know, invited, you know, you could have, for example, um, be on a, on a research project with your university. And so the university requires you to, you know, visit our communities. But you can't just walk into um, where I'm from and start research. You have to go through protocol. And that is our way of sort of uh, reminding you who is in control. So what you do on our lands requires you to, you know, to, to do things with respect. But it also is a protection for you that we want to make sure you're okay. And it's a very elaborate process. So coming to Hawaii, you know, it's interesting that I always have that feeling every time I walk into a community, that feeling of just waiting at the door, you know, even though there may be no formal welcome, just waiting there and being in tune with the fact that I must remember that I am here in Hawaii a guest. But as Paula mentioned, it's more of an interrogation when I go home as a researcher. So the experience or the article I shared was written by Dr. Graham Harvey. So I took him back to my community and we went through the protocol. And I realized that as much as he was a guest, I was returning home from the city. and there was more expectations on me rather than a stranger from Britain. And that became a really profound learning for me. As you said, Gladys, you know, when you return home, your community 
want to know, are you still grounded in the future well-being of our community? Have you changed? And for us, Porphyry is the, is the opportunity for us to stand and to acknowledge and recognize our genealogy, our connection to the community, to the people, to the place, our marae. And I think it's a wonderful you know, example of um, how cultural practice is the beginning of a relationship, very important protective factor. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I learned even today, Paula and I just recently been working in a community on the west side of the island. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to meet with community people from that side of the island. They'll reconnect. We're always mindful that we're walking into, you know, a different, what we call Ahupua, which is the space between the, the river and the mountains and the mountain ridges, which are, are like territories, if you like, or what we call back at home. So those examples that you just shared are some ideas or or some learnings that you've taken about how to begin in the work, how to begin the relationship, what are the important things to be aware of. Can you share with me, and I know you've developed and written about the Strengths Enhancing Evaluation Research Model, and I'll share that resource when the podcast goes live. But I was wondering if you could walk me through, as you start an evaluation partnership, what does that look like in the development? Can you talk to some of the steps in that process? I worry about prescribing things or telling people there are steps. And I know we wrote that piece, but even looking back at it now, you know, it's kind of the way us academicians work. We try to create kind of the formula, you know, the model. And there are, to me, some general things you can do, but I'm of the nature that you go with the respect and then you follow. And we can walk through those things that we suggest. Peter, any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, there's some guidelines, but once you engage or you, you know, literally step onto the lands or into the space of a community or an organization, you have to let everything go, right? You know, you can prepare, like Paula and I would prepare to go into the communities and, you know, we would have our briefings, we would have an outline of, of what we want to share, but we don't just do one visit to that place. We go back several times, but we always take food. Oh, that's really important. It's the confidence to be able to, okay, we, we're now in their space. We're not winging it, we're just saying, let the spirit be our guide, you know, it's like we're here in their space, whatever happens, happens. And that's kind of like a really good state of mind that we go in with. We've had incidences, right, Paula, where there's been some activity or some incident that's happened where the interview or our meetings have had to be cut short or, you know, a group of children turn up and it's like they run all over this place and it's loud and or in one particular case, when Paula and I went to uh, up the Kalihi Valley to uh, work with the executive director and we were doing our um, evaluation work, a whole group of high schoolers came to clean up the front of the property. Here in Hawaii, things grow very quickly. And there must have been, I'd say, 20 or 30 people working on the property, uh, cleaning up the front of the entrance. And the husband of the person we were talking to was on a big uh, lodo, you know, scraping the road and it was huge. And they had a three-year-old son. 
there was some anxieties, right? Because baby was running around and we were aware that yeah. there were two of us. And so while Paula was um, setting up to the interview with Puni, the director, I realized that her anxiety was, where's my little baby? Because he's with my husband. So to ease her calm, I said to Paula, Paula, I'm going to go down and to the front where there's so much chaos and take care of her son. You can do the interview on your own and that kind of thing. You know, you have to be flexible. And so I told her husband, well, I motioned to him that I'll take baby because he was around all this heavy equipment and everyone was distracted. And that put her mind at ease for the interview and that put her husband's mind at ease because he was on a quite a large sort of payload and moving stuff around him. So those kinds of things, Gladys, you know, it's like, it's not just about doing evaluation work, it's it's being engaged, you know, taking care of a child or um, helping clean up the place. Um, we even went into the, at the same place, into the gardens. And, you know, while we were talking with some of the staff there, you know, we were just, you know, helping out. We know what our work is. We know what we have to do. But then you've got to go with what's happening. And so letting go is quite important. I think reciprocality is what we're talking about is reciprocality meaning that we we're there we we're not going to stand around when something's happening we need to pitch in we need to do what we know instinctively is right to your question Gladys we did develop a manual you know again it's not prescriptive that strengths enhancing evaluation research manual, which I can, you know, definitely share with you. And actually, it was created through our research work in 2010, Peter. (laughs) I'm just looking back at all of this stuff. And essentially, there's a graphic in this workbook, this manual, that describes the researcher coming into the situation as a respectful learner a partner, a consultant, and then, you know, developing that relationship through trust building and understanding guesthood, as Peter mentioned, partnering in many aspects of the research as possible, the research process. So it does take time. It's not one of these in and out kind of things. It will take a couple of years sometimes, at least six months, and we have to respect their time they're doing work and other things. We can't just come in there and say, okay, we want to do some research or we want to partner. We have to go at their time, their pace. And then we're listening to stories. So the narratives to us are extremely vital data, if you want to go with the Western term. And then the data analysis, we want them to be involved in that. And whatever we develop is collaboratively developed and used, you know, for their growth, for their empowerment, for their sustainability. Yeah. And to add to that, Paula said something really important, you know, for example, how you collect data, right? While we did what most people do is you sit down and talk about it. You know, we were out in say the discovery garden where all the little children are running around collecting data, you know, having fun with kids and talking to parents. I recall one time we were up at Ho'ulu Aina Kalihi 
and two of the workers were out there because their uh, backhoe broke down. <laughs> and so I was out there talking with them, you know, while they were fiddling around with the parts who wouldn't start. My dad's a mechanic, so I kind of like dug around in there to figure out what was going on. And and that's collecting data, right? I've learned that. You know, indigenous ways of collecting data aren't sort of like your normal sit around and have a discussion. We do talk story, which is a local Hawaiian way of gathering data, but you get um, some amazing stories happening, you know, while you're talking to a, a mother taking care of her three-year-old, you know, and they're just all trying to put their baby to sleep. And, you know, and I think some might say that's, uh, you know, you're invading people's space, but if you do it with respect and humility, you know, gathering data that way, I think it's far more real, you know, it's not sort of, you know, having to sort of manufacture a sort of a process of here we are behind the table uh, talking to each other or having a face-to-face conversation. Typically, if you're working with Indigenous communities or with local people here, they're usually doing something. I learned that from my community and my own research is best conversations you have is washing dishes with um, some of the participants or cleaning or doing yard work or something around their facility or helping them out to do something. The idea of working with your hands is as important as your mind. And, you know, as I mentioned, you have to listen with your eyes. You also have to data collect with your hands, right? You know, and that's like um, help people out. In my community, after the protocol, visitors know that they're now local when they're washing dishes with us. You know, they're out around sweeping the floors. They're in our place. And it's an honor for them and for us for have, to have them help us. And we know it's kind of a, like an equalizing of the relationship where you come in as a guest. Now you're one of us since you're a local for the time you're with us. And I think that's an important part of how you do work. And, you know, it's a changing paradigm of evaluation for those who are used to the sort of mainstream or traditional ways of evaluation. For us, it's you can evaluate while you're sweeping the floor or as I said, washing dishes or helping out some of the workers whose machines have broken down. Taking an interest in the things they're doing, I think it's really important. Thank you for answering so deeply the question. And, and I kind of chuckled at myself when I say steps and, and you all are like, no, no, that's not how it happens. It actually happens by just, you know, putting the values into action by, by being there and showing up in a good way. And it's the how of the work. It's about the process. And it's about, you know, relationality and reciprocity. And so I appreciate those stories that you shared. I want to ask about how you do your work is so deeply rooted in Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing that are grounded in your own worldviews and cultural practices. But have you experienced challenges in getting that work supported, uh, you know, through funding, through actually working in this way and delivering evaluation in the way that you know it needs to be done. Have there been conflicts that have happened as a result? Oh, for sure. (laughs) But it's how you see them, right? There are challenges, there are institutional gatekeeping, all of those things. It's what I guess uh, Indigenous researchers encounter because, you know, you think about it, we're dealing with a, if you're within, say, a university, you're dealing with a, a very colonial system or institution knowing full well that you know you're part of a culture but 
recognizing too that universities and Paul and I briefly chat about this, you know, we talk about extractive industries and, you know, of which universities are pretty good at in terms of knowledge extraction from our community. So we're very aware of that. I think you develop a very thick layer of skin. As I said, Paul and I's way is very sort of fluid, very flexible. We, we walk into the community, but we do a lot of preparation work. You know, we challenge each other. We talk about what if things don't go the way we hope to do. Paul and I have dealt with a lot of challenges while I was at University of Hawaii, not only with uh, the university and, you know, when we grant money goes in and we had one incident, I remember Paula, you know, I, I live not too far from one of the projects, for example, and we had budgeted travel time. And because I was within five miles, I think, of one of the sites we were visiting, even though I would go into a meet with Paula at the university, which is an hour away from me, according to the university's policies, if I'm within five miles of where the project is located, there is no travel reimbursement. And that was like an institutional kind of um, policy that, because, but it was grant money that we had brought in and it was like, okay, we deal with those things. But if you believe in the work, right, you figure out how you can work around that and you become really skilled at uh, bending rules, I guess, or figuring how you get through these and you learn from them it's an opportunity to share those with others who are facing similar problems. I guess what I'm saying, Gladys, is uh, it's not unique. It's point of better term. It's normative. It's a normative practice to have barriers put in front of you if you're an Indigenous researcher going into your own communities or into other communities because you're not only dealing with politics of community, you're dealing with the politics of your institutions. And that typically is a lot more difficult to work around you know as i said they're post-colonial institutions and let's call it out right you know i'm not afraid to say that it's quite a oppressive and racist challenge at times but you can't let that stop you you know i'll end on this point is the community much more powerful than an institutional policy things like indirect costs which universities take from projects i mean Paula and I figured out ways of how you could sort of like, well, if the money comes from the foundation, then you can reduce indirects to the university, which means more resource going to the community. So, you know, it's a challenge at times, but you learn from it. And then the most important, I think, part of the learning is you share that with others. This is how you get around these blocks or challenges. It's going to happen again and again. And I think funding, going to funding, you got to finesse funding. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but uh, we actually go to funders that we know we have a leg up with. For example, here in Hawaii, we have many foundations that are private. So you got to read their mission statement and see where you and the work you're trying to do in a particular community can fit in. And there are plenty of places where you can creatively find money to support communities and their evaluation research. So Consuelo Foundation, which is a Hawaii-based foundation actually focusing on Filipinos in the Philippines and Native Hawaiians here, we identified them as a particular source and we're able to work with them on objectives 
that they wanted to understand about the programs they're funding that are indigenous. So that was one. We also work with the administration for Native Americans. That's another big funder. And actually they were giving funds or they had awarded funds to Nakamale, that early education indigenous program that I spoke of. And putting ourselves out as people who work in the community, they invited us through the you know, connection with Consuelo Foundation, they invited us to be their evaluators for the funding they received from ANA. So there are challenges, but there are creative ways to find funding for communities or to network with people. I think networking is so huge. Talking to people, putting yourself out there. That's how we started working with Ulu'ae, which is the learning center in Kalailoa, because somebody from Kamehameha Schools, you know, we go out and give talks and Mikiala Lidstone, who's the executive director of Ulu'ae, said to one of the people at Kamehameha Schools, you know, I remember these people and I want to get in contact with them. And then he contacted us and then we went straight out to them. So networking is huge. And can I just add one other thing in terms of the challenges that we we constantly have to deal with is, you know, this issue of who owns the data, right? Who owns the stories? Because I think Paul and I are very clear that if it comes from the community, it belongs to the community. But then, you know, you're working on a grant and what do we do with the data? So we have this constant, as Paul mentioned, sort of reciprocity that we always re-enter the community, taking back in to them what we've done, what we've drafted. And in real time, we will sit with them with the draft reports in front of them and they would read it and then they would make corrections. You know, we do that. And it always becomes a challenge for us as like, we're not part of that extractive process, right? That we take it and then use it. And then we always give it back in some form. And that's really critical. And how we give it back is important. That's protocol as well. But also, what are we giving back? You know, what's the format? So Paul and I really are being grateful for some of the amazing work done by Paula's cousin, who's our videographer, who's an incredibly talented Indigenous filmmaker. And he comes into the communities and he's just brilliant. I'm from Molokai, where Paula's from, grew up here, and his process is very, very open to the communities that we've worked and have had him and join us have just appreciated the fact that data is represented in a visual format. Wolf funders, for example, be okay with us um, writing a report and having, you know, some sort of documentary or slideshow that go with it. Because one of the things that we hear from a lot of the communities, right, Paula, is is an evaluation never really captures the essence. It doesn't really capture, you know, the what the interactions, right, the relationships like the engagement between a child and a father or, you know, a mother and an elder, just it's not captured. And so we recognize that. So how information is collected and in what format, I think it's exciting. You know, can it be captured in an artwork? Can it be captured in the writing of a poem or of a song? You know, because that's how traditionally, right, if you think about it, how our people, our Indigenous communities captured data was uh, for, for us, we did it in in what we call whakaero, which is carvings in our meeting houses, or the mata ora, we, you know, the tattooing, it's data. 
And so there are various ways. And so I think that's an exciting field. So a future field for, say, perhaps Indigenous researchers to really move into these, exploring these new formats of data collection and the transmission of data and the interpretation of data. So just one other point, I've been reading about the fascinating work where a lot of um, Native peoples have their own numeric system and systems of math. So some Pacific Islands have been using the binary codes long before some philosopher or some mathematician in the 14-1500s in Europe discovered binaries. And there are different numeric systems. Can we capture data that way? It's, it's a huge way to explore and to validate not only what Indigenous data and stories are, but what are the methodologies of collecting and how do we bring those back? Yeah, absolutely. So my one piece of advice in this area is make sure you have a place, a line item on your budget to do this kind of creative reporting information transmission, which is what we did. I always make a line for something in terms of reporting. It's not just paper. Yeah, so important. And yeah, arts-based translation, knowledge mobilization, something I'm really excited about. Thank you for sharing. Uh, when you think about what else is needed to support or to strengthen this field of Indigenous evaluation, and combined with that, what would you like to share with emerging Indigenous evaluators as they you know, start to build experience in this work? Uh, well, um, to your first point, what I'm really very keen about, not so much this idea of succession, but it's like creating a community or Indigenous community researchers, right? So they become experts at doing research within their own communities and sort of engaging and sort of uh, part of going into the communities that Paul and I go into is what can we teach them in terms of how to collect data or what can they teach us? But the whole whole idea of, you know, you can collect this too. You don't have to be a professor at a university or have a kind of a role as a researcher to be able to do good research. Communities can do it. So it's about re-empowering communities to engage with their own realities and their own work and value that and to sort of mentor young Indigenous people within the communities, because the reality is they already have the tools to do that, right? They're far more expert than probably us. I'm talking about these sort of millennials and the Z-gens at using technology. So how could they sort of use their iPhones and their iPads and their social media accounts to move into a, a direction of collecting their own stories? I think that's wonderful. And it's kind of a process of decolonizing when you re-empower or re-enable them or create the pathways which they can co-create pathways for them. But that's one thing for me is to turn things around and actually to sort of give the communities the insights into how to become effective evaluators and researchers, because they do it anyway. Oh, so what was your last question, um, Gladys? Yeah, yeah. If you had anything you wanted to share for oh. emerging Indigenous evaluators. Um Wow, it's very simple. It's know yourself, right? Be grounded in your own sense of cultural heritage or cultural heritages, you know, because it's kind of a bit of a challenge if you don't know who you are and you're walking into a community, you know, who know who they are. And the question that you always ask when you come to my community is not what do you do, but where are you from? We want to know where you're from and 
you know, I'm from a rich culture of storytellers. And you talk to any Maori, I know I'm generalizing, we are just intrigued and fascinated by stories of where your people are from. So if you do come to Aotearoa to, or, or even here to Hawaii, know who you are when somebody in the community says, so who are you? You know, um, here in the U.S., I find that you're introduced by your status, your, whether, you know, doctor so-and-so, you know, um, and, and your job, you know, you're a researcher, you're a professor. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, Gladys, that, that doesn't really mean much to a people in their communities well i think here to some extent but certainly back at home but if you say i grew up on molokai or i'm from haula or i went to kahuku high school you know which are things that people really want to hear it engages quickly a sort of a relationship with somebody and if you can tell your story to anyone who asks i think that will help you get through all the ups and downs and the challenges you know because you're grounded in who you are and people really appreciate that you know oh and the other thing i think just as a side by issue uh learn to sing songs from your own culture your own community because if you come to my country my community you're already stolen the hearts of the local people if you can stand up and sing a song because we love to sing because we compliment everything when you stand to introduce yourself we expect you to sing a song so Come prepared, right? So, you know, I'm always at home singing songs from when I was a child. But know who you are, where you're from also, and so you can share that. And expose your talents, you know, if you're a good singer or a good poet or allow people to see that. So they see that you are human, you know, and that you have a life. You know, who's interested in if you've got your PhD from the University of Hawaii or from, you know, uh, Massey University in Aotearoa, New Zealand? I mean, that's great, but that doesn't really say anything about where you grew up, you know. I think my term for PhD or the acronym is push here, dummy. And I just feel that that stories really connect us so critical to who we are and how we connect. And Peter is so right. I remember my first time in Aotearoa receiving the song going there to present, but also receiving so much. And so going back to your first question, I think, Gladys, I think one of the things that I'm starting to see that's so wonderful is this cross-fertilizing of people from different indigenous communities worldwide, listening to each other's stories, beginning to understand the ways in which the structure has oppressed everybody and how they can join together in their efforts. Seeing that larger picture helps us move in our communities with those goals of social justice and equality in receiving services. All those things, to me anyway, I feel inspired by the work that's being done all over the world by indigenous communities. So I think the younger generation is mobilizing in that direction. And Gladys, I consider you a younger generation. And it's extremely heartwarming to me. And I think it's the future. There are still going to be a lot more challenges. But together, listening to each other's stories, we can find that place where 
we reach our potential and we have well-being, even for the non-Indigenous communities. I think we can set the bar, we can model those things, even though it seems like, you know, we're in a sometimes terrible situation. I think we're the hope. Beautiful. I cannot believe that we are coming to the end of our time together. I have felt so just inspired and energized by, you know, by the passion you bring and the lessons you offer and just such a gentle, gentle space this has been. And I'm really grateful. I wanted to make sure that if there's anything else, you know, when I sent this invitation along, it was there anything else that you wanted to make sure to share into this space, just to offer you a moment to to close off our time together with any last words. I just want to thank you, Gladys, for doing this and creating these opportunities for young evaluators or even seasoned evaluators to learn and perhaps even be validated in some of the things that they're thinking, maybe some of the challenges that they're going through. So I really appreciate you providing this space uh, for that. I think Paula said it to encourage that anyone who is listening to this and sharing this, that, you know, you create a network, you create a a community for yourself of people that you can work off. Because uh, one of the things that happened a few weeks ago at a conference, actually the Hawaii Pacific Evaluation Conference, I was so uh, overwhelmed with the brilliance, the amazing brilliance of a number of young Hawaiian women who are entering into evaluation, all incredibly well grounded. And the one thing that they shared in common was a sense of like, you know, that they were kind of imposters, right? That's like, we don't know enough about evaluation. And it struck me, it's like, my gosh, you know, you have the ability to build relationships in your communities. But they saw evaluation as, you know, being really good at doing quantitative data analysis and doing statistical analysis. And they thought that, and they didn't realize the, the depth of knowledge they had. And I know them, and Paula knows them, just to encourage them, you know, come together, support each other. And that's not just within your own communities, but even internationally. I can say finally for me and maybe for Paula, we've always said this, you know, if you want to talk story, you want to throw some ideas out at us, you know, by all means, you know, um, we're only an email away or a Zoom call away if we can set something up. Don't be afraid to talk to us or call us. Paula and I, uh, we're parents, we have kids and we know what it's like, you know, to engage with young people you know, look to the side rather than look up at us. You know, we're right alongside you. And Paula and I are always willing to share our stories and give you some thoughts and some ideas and some encouragement. Exactly. You know, like we think alike, because that's exactly what I was thinking is that we are your community. So reach out to us. We're available and love to talk to you. I don't care how far you are. Lucky we have Zoom and One of my thoughts as you were speaking, Peter, has to do with, yeah, the young people, you know, I I just feel like they need to also look at how Western education has its own structural oppression. And some of that is, because I know how it felt, feeling like I just wasn't up to par. I'm not Western enough. I'm not whatever it is. And letting go of who I was. And I had to go and rediscover that to stand and feel, yeah, this is Pono, this is right. And so 
reach out. We're your community. Aloha. Say what a beautiful invitation. And I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you today. Thank you so much. And uh, wishing you a lovely rest of your day. Thank you.